And we are live. Welcome to episode, oh, I don't know what episode it is. Give me a second, guys. I'm removing the Twitter feed again because I don't know. It doesn't want to work again. Anyway, uh, episode 3205 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Monday, November 28th, 2022. If you're joining us live in the video, I want to remind you there's always a link in the video notes below uh, to the audio archive, which will go live about an hour after the live version ends. Also want to remind everybody, I will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, et cetera, in the video comments, just because you see my logo does not mean it's me. In fact, I guarantee you, if it's asking you for any private chat or something like that, it ain't me, no matter what the logo looks like. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about, for the, it'll be our first in a series of four of what I'm going to call the four pillars of homesteading. And we're going to talk about gardening today. And I'll tell you what the other three pillars are. And it's not like we're going to do them back to back to back. They will be just Jack shows spread across, you know, probably four or five weeks, taking us out to the end of the year as we head into 2023. Another year down, another year begun. Anyway, um, real quick also, if you're listening to the audio version today, you're listening to it with absolutely no editing whatsoever, no intro music or exit music. I'm still dealing with the loss of a computer that I use for my primary editing machine. Had a brand new one shipped to the house, and guess what? It arrived with at least some of its capabilities DOA. So I'm going through the return on that right now. Also lost a MacBook uh, the day before the workshop started. So when it rains, it pours with the death of computers. Anyway, with that... Today we are again going to talk about gardening and we're going to come at it from a standpoint of the wisdom of our grandparents coupled with all of the wonderful things we've learned since. So for me, the wisdom of my grandparents and my interaction with them goes back to the 1980s. So we're talking 40 plus years into the past. And of course, their roots and what they did goes back to the Great Depression. So we're going back over 100 years when we look at the way that what I'm going to refer to the group of my grandparents and their contemporaries today and how they gardened and how they homesteaded. Uh, and we have learned a lot, I feel, over the years. We've advanced in many ways, but I think sometimes we make things way more complicated. And so what I want to try to do today is bring together the modern world of all the automation and all the cool things that we do, all the new techniques, all the rare, exciting vegetables that come from all over the world that my grandparents didn't even know existed with the pragmatic, hey, we do this so we can eat and it better pay for itself and make us money or we're not going to do it because it's not worth doing. Like unless we can actually eat better for less money, there's no reason to do this. That's how my grandparents saw it. It was not a hobby. It was not something fun to do. They weren't exactly running around looking for extra work. And so I'm going to talk about how they did things, how I do things, and how those come together. But I'm also going to come at this again as a pillar in the four pillars of homesteading. And I thought it was a good time to kind of go old school because I get a lot of requests. Hey, Jack, can you go old school? Can you do things like you did at the very beginning, you know, 14 years ago when you first started the show? So that's what we're going to do today. Before we get into that, Let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. Uh, they are my, my go-to source for stacking silver and gold, and they should probably be for you too. 
And the reason would be these guys have supported the show now for like nine years. That's a long time in podcasting. They also do a discount for my MSB members. You can take uh, advantage of that discount once a month. It's a really great discount considering nobody gets you a discount in silver and gold. All your silver and gold will ship free. And if there ever is a problem, not that there is often, but if there ever is a problem, I can get directly in touch with the president, Michael, of uh, JM Bullion and get things taken care of right away. Another thing that really sold me on JM early on is when they started, I mean, they had just started. They were less than a year old when they came to me as a potential sponsor. Uh, They did have some minor customer service issues. And every time I reached out to Michael and said, hey, I need you to take care of this, he said, thank you for telling me. That's the kind of company I like to deal with. So JM Bullion for stacking your silver and gold. What about your other precious metal? How about copper jacketed lead? You can find all of that at bulkammo.com. Also, long-term sponsor. Been around for every, forever. Every year when I write them a letter and say, hey, uh, do you want to renew? Because they have to pay by check because of PayPal's crap and whatever. Um, they just say, yeah, and send an each, another check out for another year of advertising. All the common calibers you're looking for available, great pricing, lightning fast shipping, and again, discounts for the MSB. Check them out today at bulkammo.com. With that, let's go ahead and uh, dig headlong into uh, today's topic and what I want to talk about. A reminder for you guys, uh, again, I am down a computer So a lot of times you will see me looking over to my right. That's not because somebody's over there talking to me. I have a second screen over there usually that has my outline. Uh, That allows me to keep both screens active and see your questions uh, in all caps better than typically I would otherwise. Well, today is otherwise. So it's really important if you have questions or talking points for me. The first couple words uh, are in all caps. That'll make it more likely, not a guarantee, but more likely I'll see it. And I'll start so we can come back to it at the end of today's episode. So let's start off with, if this if there's four pillars to homesteading, what are they? And why are we talking about them at, let's just say it as it is, the beginning of winter? We just had the big old turkey day. We have started the holidays, as, as I like to call it, for those who didn't catch my Thanksgiving episode. When I say the holidays, it's not some version of being politically correct and not saying Merry Christmas or what have you. It's because I believe that when I say the holidays, I know that I am talking about Thanksgiving to the end of the year, this whole period of time. It's just a a, a great time of year. And it is, even though winter officially starts on the 21st of December, the solstice, um, to me, this is kind of the beginning of winter. It gets actually, it's cold out there. Things are frozen. Every once in a while, I have to blow our pipes out so that they don't freeze our pipes that are out on property because we can't dig three feet down in the dirt like you guys do. So we just blow out the whole water plant uh, on the outside lines uh, when we're going to have heavy freezes. Stuff starts to die. Put the stuff to bed for the winter. Don't let birds go broody no more because I don't want to deal with broody birds in the middle of a freeze like I have in the past, etc. It's It's the start of winter, you know. To me, it's also kind of, and I did an episode on this last week, we started to head into kind of that downtime period as well. So it's a great time for planning. And planning, a lot of times people think it's the new thing. But to me, planning is often, it begins with kind of the after action review. What did really well this year? How do we make it do even better? What did poorly? 
How do we fix it or do we eliminate it? So I think it's a good time of year for that in general. But I also think it's like just the, the time of year to really assess what you're doing. Is it going right? And now how do we take the downtime that we have and plow that into either doubling down or getting out of certain things? And I know many of you guys do call yourself homesteaders. I certainly do. I grew up with a homesteading family and no one called it homesteading. If you had asked my grandfather what homesteading was, he would have said it was, you know, like when the when the, the pioneers went west or something like that. He, he would have never called himself a homesteader. He would have never called himself a prepper. By today's definitions, he was both and, and, and big time in both ways. It was just the way people lived. And in that form of life, you have to ask why, what was, what was the motivation of my grandparents' generation for doing what we call homesteading today? And it was pretty simple. I grew up freaking poor. I didn't know I was poor. No one told me I was poor, so I didn't know I was poor. Um, and when I say poor, I don't mean that like, you know, I, I, I lived on a, with a dirt floor shack or something like that. I just mean if you look at it from a pure economic standpoint and what the poverty level was considered in the 1980s, even though my father actually made considerably more of that because the guy was he, – he made Scrooge McDuck look like, a, like, a, like, like somebody that didn't know how to save a dollar, right? So we, we lived like we were poor. And then once we, he quit his job, we moved back to Pennsylvania – or quit his business and we went to Pennsylvania, he, he really didn't have much income anymore. And he was living off all that money he had socked away. So we lived like we were poor, even though on some levels, I guess we weren't. And I never worried about food. Now, my grandparents were poor. They absolutely were poor. They were surviving on Social Security and a little bit of money from disability for black lung that my grandfather had in the mines. And all of my kind of contemporary family around my grandparents were poor or, you know, borderline poor. Most of the community was poor. Just, again, I'm talking just straight up economics. If you, so here's the poverty line. Here's what these people make a year. It was a very impoverished area. It still is. But we had these four things that we did to make sure that we never worried about food. And they were gardening, working with and having small livestock, having perennials on the property as well. So your berry bushes, your fruit trees, et cetera, and having hunter-gatherer slash local trade knowledge. And I never really thought about that when I was a kid. I guess it was one of the luxuries of not having to. But, you know, I've talked about how, like, when I was growing up, hunting and fishing wasn't something we did for fun. Now, it wasn't that we didn't enjoy it, but it wasn't the motivation for it. When you don't have the ability to just buy another one or get the thing that you want, or if you fail at something, you just go buy it instead of produce it. When, you, when it's not that simplistic, when there's not an economic-based solution to every problem, you have to think about the actions that you take. So, for instance, if you were going hunting, you were spending hours in the woods in pursuit of game that could be spent doing something else. So it had better produce something that was worth the exchange of the time, or you could have been doing something else like, I don't know, stacking firewood for somebody and getting paid with the food from their hunting or their gardening. So you had to be productive in what you did, or it wasn't worth doing it. 
And, and what that meant is if there was a way to obtain something without putting in a lot of work, like you could just, it was something that grew annually in the wild. Instead of growing that thing, you went and picked it. So we didn't do a lot of blackberries and blueberries in cultivation on our property. In fact, we did none. And I, I'm not even going to say that was the right decision, but I understand what my grandfather's viewpoint of that was. Well, every spring, go pick all the blackberries you want. Why would we use our land to produce a thing that's given to us freely with no effort? Same with the blueberries. So make sure you go spend your time picking versus planting, taking care of, and picking. And so everything that they did, whether they realized it intentionally or not, over time, it just became that. And gardening was the center point that everything else worked off of. And it's why I say it's the first pillar of homesteading. And this is my reasoning for it today, and then blending in what my grandparents taught me. First of all, it can be done almost anywhere. In all, unless you live in an apartment with no porch, you can do some form of gardening. And I always get people, how do I prep in a one-bedroom condo that's 300 square feet and has no balcony? You move. If you want to do things, and, and, and it's not that there's nothing you can do, but if you want to do things the way that I teach, which is having a relationship with your food supply chain, which is being responsible for some of your own food production, you can do a worm bin and a hydro system indoors, I guess, and lighting. But really, if you want to do the type of things that I really teach, you need to have a little bit of land, a little plot. But if you have a tenth of an acre, you can garden. It's also something that can be done very inexpensively. That's something we're going to talk about today because what does everybody want to do when it comes to a garden today, right? Raise beds. Everybody does raise beds. I'll tell you why my grandparents never did raise beds, and if I would have suggested it as a kid, they probably would have cuffed me behind the ear and told me I was dumbass and go out and do something more productive. And why I choose to do it, on my property today is pretty much because I don't have a choice, but why their wisdom is, is true for most people, right? So it does not have to be expensive. In fact, it couldn't be expensive for that generation to have done it. They didn't have the money for an expensive hobby. They needed their labor to produce something that had value to them at almost no cost. Next, it's something you can do for your food security. And one of the few blessings of the whole COVID era was that we got to see that our food supply isn't as robust as we've been led to believe. So there is always something that is threatening your food supply. Let me say that again. There's always think of think of the movie. Remember the movie with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, right? Men in Black. And when Will Smith first finds out about all the aliens and everything, and he's like. Oh, we're about to be blown up by a star, you know, star destroyer or something like that. And Tommy Lee Jones is something to the effect of there is always, there is always something like this going on. We are always this close to being blown out of the sky, whatever. We're always this close to an alien invasion. And the only thing that keeps these people calm is that they don't know it. That's how your food supply is. That's how a lot of the things that we worry about as preppers are. We're always this close. 
somebody, you know, is, I was having a discussion on social media, which is a mistake about the pandemic, which is even a bigger mistake. I, you know, so we're only one variant away from a real pandemic. Well, we're always only one variant away from a real pandemic. I mean, don't think because this didn't work out the way that all the fear mongers made it out to be that we couldn't have something that, you know, kills 10% of the people to get it. Don't think that can't happen. And we're always one mutation away. We're always one trucker strike away from a supply chain shortage. We're always this close to something disrupting one of your systems of support. And the most fundamental system support that we rely on is food. And it's something you can do. And if you can do something about something that important, you probably should. And to me, it really is the gateway drug. It's the thing that leads to not just more homesteading activities. Gardening will probably lead most people into the realm of looking at something like, for instance, getting chickens or rabbits or quail, right? Because it will create this need to do something with the excess waste that's more proactive than just throwing it in a pile for compost. And then you'll also be like, well, this food is good, so I'd like other good food. And I would like to do something, since I have the vegetation down now, on the fat and protein side. So that, that sends us toward animals, right? So it is a gateway drug into homesteading. But it's also a gateway drug into, let's say, just food preservation. Because I go and I plant, I don't know, six tomato vines. And if I live in a place where I'm not plagued by blight or I use Jack's new trick, put aspirin in the hole, right? Then all of a sudden, I've got more tomatoes than I know what to do with. And my neighbors are like, I don't want any more tomatoes. And what am I going to do with these tomatoes? And I realize, well, it's going to get cold soon. And all the tomato plants are going to die. So I look up, how do I can tomatoes? Or how do I dehydrate tomatoes? So now I've learned a new skill, food preservation. Well, now what am I doing if I'm preserving food? What is the next? What do I do with it after? Do I preserve it and then throw it in the garbage? Do I preserve it and then eat it all? No, I preserve it so it'll last longer so I put it up, I put it by, put it up in a lard. So now what am I doing? Food storage. Okay, there's your fundamental cornerstone to prepping. So it is this wonderful gateway drug, in my opinion, that leads to all these other things that I think if we can get people heading down that route, we build a more safe and secure nation, a more safe and secure society. So let's talk about the gardens of my grandparents and their contemporaries and what they actually did. And they never told me this. This, again, is the kind of thing that occurs over time. And I think often even the people that have adapted to it, if you ask them the right questions, you would find out that they knew why they were doing what they were doing. But if you ask them why they were doing what they were doing directly, like, why do you do things the way you do it? They would probably say something like, it's how we've always done it. It just works. Something like that. They wouldn't have laid out the rationale I'm about to give you, but... What they did is they focused on things that did great in their climate that had very little effort necessary to be productive. So I remember asking my grandfather about things like carrots, because I really liked carrots when I was a kid. And he's like, you need sandy soil for that. They grow those in Jersey. We don't do that here. Now, carrots would have grown okay in our climate and in okay in our soil, but they wouldn't have produced phenomenally well. 
And they weren't really a crop that he had a huge interest in. And they were a very inexpensive crop. And he could get a better quality product by buying it and using the money that he saved by growing his primary crops than trying to force this thing that he had already had experience with and said, this just doesn't do that great here. I look back at it and go, with a little bit of soil amendments, Pennsylvania zone six, are you kidding me? I could grow the hell out of some carrots there. But I get why he made that choice. And there was nothing you could do in my grandmother and my grandfather to grow anything that was difficult as long as they had enough staples that were easy. Because this, again, was not a hobby for these people. This wasn't something they did because, you know, they were bored or they weren't like, I don't want to eat the food that came from the grocery store. These are World War II people. These Great Depression people, they trusted the government way more than I do. Way more than I do. They certainly trusted the food supply. And if you think about the fact, we're talking about the mid-80s here. And you go back in the 60s and 70s, you know, which is, you know, only 20 years ago for them. And there wasn't anywhere near the amount of problems in our food supply system. So they weren't doing this because they, 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 did, they could afford food at Whole Foods, but they could afford it at the economy. They were doing this purely for the purpose of production, which kind of I want to talk about that for a second here. When I was a kid in Pennsylvania, I remember like driving around in my first car or going before that, like when I had a bicycle. And like that in the 80s, that's what you were. You're a kid. You had to get somewhere. What'd you do? You got on your bike. You go, we traveled 12, 15 miles in a day going to different places with our bikes. And so you get in and out all the neighborhoods and all the areas. And I would say every third to fourth yard had a garden in it. Then I went off and joined the Army in the late 80s, early 90s. And I ended up going home very, very briefly to Pennsylvania. I moved here to Texas in 1993. And it it actually took me a little while, you know, kind of coming back around to being in the world again, as they say, when you get out of the military. And I, it really wasn't, I was so focused on like finding a new group of friends, finding a job, getting a career, being able to afford to go to the bar, chase girls, stuff like that, that I didn't really notice right away. But as I settled in and started to build a life, it, it did dawn on me. None of these people around here have gardens. Like when you saw a garden, it was like, wow, this guy has a garden. That's the exception to the rule. And then later in, in my uh, career, I, I did a lot of work in outside plant construction. So cable, TV, telephone lines, things like that. So you had a lot of opportunity to be in a lot of backyards uh, throughout all the demographics of Dallas-Fort Worth. So from low-end neighborhoods to very high-end yuppie neighborhoods. And this is, this is late 90s that I'm talking about here. And, you know, you'd see one garden in a hundred yards. They just kind of faded away. We, we seem to have stopped realizing the value that our, 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 our grandparents put in this. And then something happened in the last 20 years. In the last 20 years, I see gardens popping up everywhere again. Now, it's not like it was in, in the 80s and the 70s in rural Pennsylvania, but here in, you know, this huge urban sprawl that is the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, you see a lot of gardens and you see new gardens and you see more interest in it. So I think people are coming back around to this wisdom. Anyway, back to my grandparents. What they really did, and all the people around them did, is they focused on 
a core group of crops that had value to them because they could use it right away and it could be preserved and it produced in large enough quantities to be worth preserving. And anything that didn't fit that, that formula was kind of grown as an afterthought. Like maybe we'll put a little bit of it tucked in here or there or throw some dill seed in around everywhere because we always use dill or what have you. But they grew very much like a small farm layout. And I can tell you right now the crops that my grandparents grew and why they grew them. Tomatoes, because it's Pennsylvania. And if you grow tomatoes in Pennsylvania, you're going to get lots of tomatoes. And once they started producing, we had tomatoes coming in like crazy. And it got used in all types of canned and jarred things, like straight-up jarred tomatoes and all, but also things like what my grandmother called barbecue sauce, which a Ukrainian grandmother does not make barbecue sauce. But what she made was good. It was basically like sloppy joe, right? She called it barbecue, but it was sloppy joe with beef in in, in it. Um, But tomatoes, because they were very prolific, and we used them all through the summer, she was big on the fry green tomato thing and stuff like that, too. But it was because it was a mass production crop and because it did well easily. Sweet peppers. Sweet peppers, honestly, were probably the worst performing crop that we had in Pennsylvania. And I have some suspicion right now about how that could have been made better. But, you know, I'm going back 35 years in my head, so I could be wrong. But what they really did was produce really well at the end of the season. Our sweet, our, our, I'm sorry, sweet peppers just didn't really blow up until like August. And then they produced like crazy till the first frost. And the primary things that my grandmother did with those was can them into different types of things, including into some other vegetable mixes. But what we also did with them, I still do to this day, is dice them up and freeze them. Like the end of the season, there should be four or five big bags of diced sweet peppers in the deep freezer, just in big gallon Ziploc bags. And that was because you just take them out and cook with them. Green beans. Green beans and wax beans. I'll combine those. We had 25-foot-long rows, 4-foot wide. And I think we had like 8 of them plus some extra ones down at the bottom. And we grew a line of green beans and a line of wax beans, yellow beans. Same row, just boom, straight down through. And they did those because if you harvest... They will keep producing over and over. So these are bush beans. And so once they started producing, I would go down once a week with a two and a half gallon pail and pick one line of them. And then the next day, pick the other line. So green beans one day, wax beans the other day. This was done because you got a ton of production. We would eat them right away, straight out of the gate. And she would preserve a bunch of them. She would blanch and freeze them and she would can them. And so they were a production crop. That's why they were there. Broccoli. We did broccoli for the same reason I don't do it much in Texas. I love broccoli. One of my favorite vegetables. In Pennsylvania, if you put your broccoli in as early as you could, so you could a few more frosts were okay. If you didn't get a heavy freeze, your baby broccoli would be fine. And you get that first big head on it. And then you get the side shoots. So we got this first harvest about 25 plants and then once a week different day than the than the beans i would be down there with that bucket cutting side shoots of broccoli and again we would eat it blanch and freeze it and she did some canning with broccoli as well so that was done because it was a continuous productive crop the next one was cauliflower my least favorite i could have done without it 
they really liked it. And I think they grew it because they liked it because it didn't have that secondary production. It also followed the cabbage. So cabbage was like first in crop. They would grow a ton of it early in the year. It could handle very, very cold temperatures. They would make their crop for the year and they would replace that cabbage with cauliflower and we'd get one good harvest off the cauliflower. And then, you know, broccoli would be the go-to from there. Cucumbers. Why? Because they're productive. You get tons of them and you can make pickles. So she made the dill pickles. She made the sweetened, uh, what do you call them? The bread and butter sweet pickles. And she made the big uh, pickles. All of that, plus we used fresh cucumbers. But it was because they were a high-production, high-storage crop, right? Garlic, because you use garlic for everything and because very easy to preserve it. You pull it late summer, cut it, put it out on the screen and dry, put it in bags, hang it down in the cellar. So it was a, another, we could grow all the garlic that we would need until next season. So that's why we did that. Sweet corn, that was a luxury. We did save some of it, but it wasn't, a, sweet corn's not a good storage crop. Uh, we had a, a, a big row that we put in for eight rows of corn, 25 feet long. That was just, so it was a double row. Uh, it was just for growing the sweet corn. And we always grew, grew Silver Queen, and that was just a luxury. I already said cabbage and butternut squash. And butternut squash was kind of interplanted because it was a storage crop. That's what they grew. That's what they grew. Um, they did not sit down with a Baker Creek catalog like they we do today and be like, oh, look at this rare thing from, you know, the, the Far East or something like that. In fact, when I would say like, look, I found this plant. I want to grow it. They were always like, okay, you want to grow some? That's great. Go, go put another bed in. And so I had my own bed that I dug and pre- prepared. And I could grow my own stuff in there. I decided one year I wanted to grow acorn squash. They're so like, Go put it in your bed. If you need more bed, you, and the thing was, you can grow as much as you want. We have more land. The only thing stopping you, young man, is a shovel. By the way, it better look good. My grandparents' gardens, they were laid out with strings, and you went through with a sod cutter, and they had to be straight, and they had a uniform width, and the width between the beds was exactly the width of the commercial lawnmower that was used to mow the grass in between the rows. And by God, they would be that way. I don't do things exactly that way now, but that's the way they did things. It was all done very much like a small farm that was rotated seasonally, but in dedicated rows. So the peppers might be in this, let's say, row one in year one, and cucumbers might be in row one in year two, right? And it would keep changing around. But they were dedicated rows so that when we harvested, we were Because we were harvesting for large amounts per harvest. So when you started picking green beans, you sat down on your little stool and you started picking green beans. And then you moved your stool and you kept going till you got to the end and the bucket was full. And you took them up the ground. That, that was how we did this. And that's not how I do things today, but I get why they did things that way. So I had my own little place, right? And they had their small farm, basically. They had a production mindset. All the beds were in ground. I mentioned that earlier, but the reason was very simple. They didn't need, they didn't need to have a raised bed. So what does a raised bed require if you have to put it in? Something with which to build the bed, right? We have to have lumber. Well, lumber could be used for other things. Lumber was expensive. You know, my grandfather would have said, well, where are you going to get it? Because I ain't paying for it. 
Number two, though, you need fill. Right? So now you got to go out and find dirt somewhere and haul it in. And he would have said, we got perfectly good dirt right there. And he was right. But it wouldn't actually made a lot of sense. We barely irrigated because of the climate we were in. We would have to water a couple times in midsummer, sometimes in and through August, depending on the, how much rain we got. And, but most of the time we didn't water. Now, if you put raised beds in, you're going to, unless you're in a really wet spot where you need to get up out of the moisture, you're going to increase your irrigation requirements. So the last thing I actually want to do here in Texas is use raised beds. But I do it because I don't have enough soil depth. I have, it's like, it's like I am gardening on an abandoned parking lot. Of course, you're going to use raised beds for that. But they didn't use it because it would have cost money that we didn't need to spend. And it didn't make sense for the climate either. Um, when the first freeze came, we were done for the season. We were not out there putting plastic tarps over things, putting row covers, extending the season. The viewpoint was we have about 130 to 150 day growing season. Grow the food. When the season's over, do something else. And that made a ton of sense because you know what happened right about the time that we would end the gardening season would be the beginning of hunting season. Dove season would start in September. That was pretty much a weekends only thing. And it was, you know, a few weeks here and there. And then we got into October and then you get into archery. And then we were dedicated hunting because when you bring a deer home, you brought something home. So October would also be when you probably in that climate get your first good freeze. So it's just like, we're hunting now. We're hunting. So we had September was when all the effort went to the last push Give it away or put it away. That's what my grandmother used to say. If we can't put it away, we'll give it away. So she would she would can as much as she could until she was tired. Or when she was like, we don't need it anymore. She would put it all in bags and start writing families' names on it and send my ass off all over the little town we lived in, giving away food to people who were too old to have gardens. Right? So that that was that's what we did. And we were done at the end of the season. Fertility, this is what they did for fertility. We had a neighbor with a horse, and I had to go over the wheelbarrow and get the shit and bring it over and put it in the compost pile, right? When we had fishing remains, they either went into the compost pile and got buried, or I would dig up around plants and bury fishing remains in the ground directly. Mulch, which was whatever we got our hands on, and gasp, 10-10-10 fertilizer. My grandfather would look at a plant and go, it's kind of yellow. And I would go down with the 10, 10, 10 and just sprinkle a little around and water it in. Now, I don't do that today. I have my own method, but I don't fault my grandfather for that one bit. The other thing they did use, though it was very rare, but there were times it was used, toxins like seven dust. If you were going to have your crop for the year wiped out by pests, then he would knock them back with something like seven dust. We would also use like the cabbage flies that would get on the broccoli and the cauliflower and all. We used, I don't even remember, it was a DE and a little duster thing. So like you put the DE in it and you cranked it and it made a cloud and it went all over it and they just didn't really want to eat it when it, it was not toxic. So the toxins were used only when they were felt necessary and they were only used as long as they were seen necessary. Again, I don't do that today, but I certainly get why they did. 
herbs like dill and other things that were just kind of afterthoughts. They were just interspersed and grown. They weren't, there wasn't like a dedicated herb bed or anything like that. And harvest was this ongoing affair and it was scheduled in a way to create milk, meal qualities or enough to make storage make sense. So they probably wouldn't have been so hip on my a larger number of variety of plants and kind of picking enough each day to eat. So my grandmother want me to, again, go down one day a week for green beans, one day a week for wax beans, one day a week for broccoli, one day a week for cucumbers. And they, they understood that by growing large amounts and regularly harvesting, the plants were stimulated to produce more. People think if they harvest less, they'll save it and they'll get more. That's not how it works. If you have a cucumber plant with a ton of cucumbers on it, there's a point where it's like, I guess I don't need to put any energy into making more fruit. My prodigy is there. My job has been done. I'm an annual. I'm happy. But if you're constantly taking fruit off the vine, then you're stimulating the vine. The vine's going, oh, I need to produce more. Beans are especially that way. Tomatoes are especially that way. Peppers are especially that way. So that that was it was a it was a double reason for it. One was that it increased the productivity, but two was it made the quantity worth doing something with. So if my grandmother was going to can beans this week, she would probably wait till let's say if I was going to pick Tuesday and Wednesday until both the green and the wax were picked. Then she decided, do I really want to? How much do I really want a can of this? And I'd probably have my ass over the sink cutting tips off. And cutting them to size. And a certain amount would get frozen. And a certain amount would get set aside. This is this week's food. So we're probably going to eat green beans two or three nights this week. Because there's a lot of them. More than I want to can. But that meant that every week there was enough coming in. That there was a quantity worth doing something with. Where if if you're doing a smaller number of plants. Which is what I kind of like to do now. That's probably not going to be the case. Um, my modern version of this, number one, follow the wisdom and grow what you eat all the time that is easy for your climate. I've had that philosophy for quite a long time. I've pushed the envelope with it because I like to find new stuff. I like to sit around in the wintertime when it's cold with my Baker Creek catalog and go, ooh, I want to grow that this year. Ooh, I want to grow that this year. But I've, I've learned over the years that for every happy surprise – Like, this did amazing. My Indian steak beans this year, like, oh, my God, these are delicious, right? Like, for every one of those, there's five or six that either grow poorly or just aren't worth the effort for what you get, or they look neat, but they're no better than something that does better that just looks a little different, right? So grow what is what you eat. I really recommend new gardeners. You need to start tracking what you eat from the produce section and grow what you buy, if you can. Next, reserve an area to test new stuff annually and adopt what you discover. So just like I had my own special kid's bed that I had to make for myself, I kind of have an area in my garden, like an area in my wicking bed area, an area in my, my aquaponics area, an area in my main garden area, where like this is set aside to try new shit every year so that I can maybe find one new cool thing every year to make part of what I do. And I might have to test four or five, six things to do that. And I probably do less of that than I used to. Incorporating trellising. 
This was something that my grandparents just didn't do. Unless you're going to say staking up tomatoes is trellising. So I don't call that trellising. I call that sapling murder. But I enjoyed sapling murder when I was a kid because it came with a machete. So every year, my granddad would come to me with this big-ass machete. I have no idea where he got it. It looked like it was made out of, like, scrap steel or something. And I would be sent forth, go find birch saplings. The red birch saplings were considered perfect for this because they grew straight and really tall where they were still not that big around. And I'd come back with like eight foot birch saplings sharpened to a point, put them a good foot and a half, two foot in the ground. You'd have a six foot high and we would tie them up with like old torn rags, like from old shirts and stuff like that is how we'd, and that would be the closest thing to trellising that they did. And they did that only because they knew that tomatoes did better vertical than on the ground. That was it. I didn't even know until I moved here to Texas and kind of rediscovered gardening that anybody even trellised a cucumber. That was a foreign idea to me, let alone trellising a bean. I didn't know until like my second wave of this stuff that there was a thing called a pole bean. We always grew bush beans. And I bet you my grandfather knew there was a pole bean, but he would have said, the bush beans make more beans, right? Because when you continuously harvest bush beans, they keep producing like crazy. So there was a lot of things. And I think this is an interesting concept that maybe we didn't learn from our elders, even when they were very, very intense, intensive on teaching us because they taught us what they had learned, not the things they learned along the way to get there. Do what I say. Don't worry about why that type of mentality. And out of that generation, it was very heavy. And also because we didn't ask. So I didn't know anything about vertical growing. And it is one of the most important aspects of my gardening today. For those that saw the presentation last week, where I have the garden beds that are about eight foot apart. Uh, and I have the cattle panels that make arches. Those arches grow a ton of food that take up no space really in the beds. And then I have the, the trellising behind the, for the tomatoes and the beans and everything else. So I have really increased my production per square foot by adding trellising to what I do and being strategic. Like if I put a trellis here and the, the trellis is on the west side and when the sun goes over to the west side at the hottest part of the day, it gives the rest of the plants a break by creating shade. So I think that's something my grandparents would have gotten really into had they even known about it. Who knows? Maybe not. Maybe they would have said that costs money. Um, automated irrigation. And it's something that's been the weakest thing that I've done. Most of my automated irrigation up to this year has been in the form of wicking beds that, that auto-refill. And that's worked really well. But I'm going to full automated irrigation on everything that I grow as far as an annual. Because bluntly, Texas ain't PA. My grandparents would have laughed if I said, Grandpa, I want to go down to Center Supply, get a bunch of that PVC pipe and put it together and build an irrigation system so we can water the garden every week. He would have said, what the hell are you going to do that for? God makes it rain. Don't you know that? And he was right because of where we lived. I probably watered his garden three or four times in an average summer. He would always be, he, and it didn't, we had a well. It wasn't like he had a water bill, right? So, but he would be like looking at the news going, it's going to rain Friday. I know they look a little sick, but it's, they'll make it till Friday. It's Wednesday already. Leave it alone. 
And he knew that the rain was better for it as well. Or he'd be like, well, it looks like it's going to be at least a week before we get a barn burner. That's what we call the uh, thunderstorm. He'd say, you better go down there and water everything, water it real good, so you only have to do it once. So that garden was about a quarter acre, and it might take me half a day to water it. But I only had to do it a few times a year, so he would have never thought it was worth automating or doing irrigation of any kind. He would have just thought it was pointless. And he would have said, you're watering all the damn grass that grows between, like, drip and stuff like that really wasn't that well known back then. And he certainly didn't know anything about it. So I went to the automated irrigation and using shade as a strategy. Everything that, and this is where we need to realize, like, if you learn from somebody, you're not dishonoring what they taught you by taking a different approach, especially if you don't live where they lived. So if I grew up, in Pennsylvania, and if I had stayed in central Pennsylvania, and if I was still there today, I would be doing some of the things that I've adopted down here, like vertical trellising and all. And I might make my life easy by automating some irrigation or at least putting irrigation option in, turn the crank and it works type irrigation. But I would still be doing things a lot closer to the way my grandfather did than I would here. I wouldn't really use shade as a strategy that much in rural Pennsylvania because you actually wanted as little shade as possible up there. Because when you had an area that was shaded for part of the day and an area that wasn't, the one that wasn't always did better unless it was very specific plants. So I'm using a different tactic because I live in a different climate with a different solar exposure. Uh, Growing niche crops, I do that mostly now in my aquaponics, hydroponics, and wicking beds. My main garden beds, I'm actually much closer to my grandparents' method. I just don't grow as much because I don't need to store as much. And I'll kind of save for the end why that I feel that's the case. Um, I grow a lot of dual-use crops. I, don't, I can't think of anything that my grandparents grew that was seen as a dual-use crop. I can think of some things that actually have dual uses, but they didn't do it, probably because they didn't know. Um, Butternut squash being one of their plants, you know, you get tons of blossoms uh, that are male and you, you know, they're not going to set fruit and you only need so many of them to set fruit with your female blossoms. Uh, you get out of time blossoms when there are no female blossoms and they're only male. So like that could have been a dual use crop because we could have used the blossoms. We never did. I get, that's about the only way I can think of. I grow things like sweet potato and I grow sweet potato because it's easy to grow. It trellises like crazy up on the trellis. That creates that shade for me. But I love eating sweet potato greens. I grow way more than we could ever eat. So I feed a ton of it to my livestock. It's about 9% protein, so it's a good livestock fodder. Plus, you get the, 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 the sweet potato yield. And I like specifically the, the purple Okinawan sweet potatoes. And there's When you look at the uh, Asian purple sweet potato, there's two types. There's one that's like a light-colored skin, and the purple is the potato flesh. They're fine. I have nothing against them. But the other ones and the ones I grow are like a purple skin and a white flesh. And they're also known as masuka. Sometimes they're referred to as Taiwanese. Uh, Sometimes they're referred to as various things. But those are the ones that I like to grow. And I like them because they're dual-use crops. And that's a strategy they really didn't use. Um, Again, I use raised beds, but only because I have to. If I lived down where I used to live in the Mansfield area of Texas, which is about 45 minutes to an hour from here, deep black clay soils, 
I would not use raised beds anymore. Even though I did when I lived there, I certainly, and if I did, they would not be very high. I do like raised beds for a standpoint of management. It makes it really clear, like, this is not the bed, this is the bed. You can take a weed whacker and go right along and take out all the stuff trying to grow up and over into your beds, right? And it's a defined space and things like that, but it's more of an aesthetics thing in that instance because from a strategy standpoint in a dry climate you actually want your your plants as deep into the ground in fact there's even indigenous societies that grew in the desert southwest of the united states that literally made pits so you had a pit so it was a a opposite a lowered bed gardening and that's that is a valid strategy as well um I do not use 10-10-10 conventional fertilizer. I don't use miracle Grow. I don't use any conventional fertilizer whatsoever. I have replaced it with high-quality organic fertilizers, specifically Dr. Earth uh, 444 Gold is my favorite fertilizer. I don't even think things like that were available to my grandparents. I don't know if they would have paid the premium for them anyway, but I don't think that that type of organic, like organic fertilizer meant manure or compost. It, it did not mean that you went out and bought something like a Dr. Earth product. They didn't really exist. Not that I can remember. I fight disease with organic methods or I just grow other things. That's actually very similar to what they did. I don't remember diseases ever being a problem for my grandparents. I think partly it was because they were growing. Most of their seeds had been saved and saved and saved, and they were very adapted. They had decided long before I was ever born, if this thing was a problem, they weren't going to grow it. And I think so that took care of a lot of it. But I also think that the environment they were in was just less of a diseased environment because it was lower stress. You got natural rain, deep soils. The soils in central Pennsylvania are some of the most fertile in the world. Uh, So they had a good palate on which to grow. But I choose to do things like, again, aspirin for the tomato blight, which I think James is here in the chat. Thank you for that one. I'll, I'll always owe you that one. I had tomatoes this year until the day before it froze, and lots of them. There were tomato hornworms all over the plants, and it didn't matter. They weren't doing any damage. I mean, I'm sure they were eating some of it, but it was growing still so fast that it didn't matter that they were there. It was, it was really cool. And so we've either found how to fight those diseases, or we grow other things, or we time our growing. So my strategy with my winter squash is I grow the most resistant to the squash vine borers, that I can, which is a Trombuccino zucchini, which, excuse me, just a second, that would be this guy right here, right? So I grow these, and I have had years where the squash vine borers just can't kill them, and I've had years where the squash vine borers absolutely can kill them. And I, I like this plant because from here up is pure flesh and meat, and only the little ball has seeds in it, and they store for a good six months with no special treatment or concerns whatsoever. So I grow those. But my my technique in dealing with the vine borers, because sometimes the vine borers will still be bad enough to kill them, I start them as early as I can, and I get as much production off them as I can. And if they look like they're just not really going to produce anymore, cut the vines off, take the take the, the production that I have, and I plant something else. And that really is something that is very much an evolution of what my grandparents taught me. Um, I plant in an organized way, and more so now than I used to. If you look at the picture for today's episode, 
this is my garden about three or four seasons ago. And I will tell you, I think it looks beautiful. I love all that interspersed planting, herbs growing in with everything and what have you. But from a standpoint of, of, of management and thinking more like my grandparents, it's much easier now. Um, but again, I go with this, and this is something you won't be able to see unless you come check the video out. This layout that I have for my drip irrigation and my planting plan going forward and pretty much growing my staple crops in those garden systems. And yeah, I can interplant some herbs and stuff, or there's an open hole here, throw some basil in that, throw some fennel in that, what have you. But um, much more of a kind of organized um, organized approach to things uh, as far as uh, keeping that going. And then the last thing is, I don't try to do what my grandparents did with anything other than peppers, eggplant, and to some degree tomato in that I am not really trying to grow for mass stores. And I know as a prepper, that might sound a little bit crazy. But what I try to do is grow more for, I want to be able to go out from the time production begins until the frost. I want to look at my garden and say, you know what, tonight we're going to have eggplant and fennel and cut a fennel bulb and cut two eggplants. And the next day go out and go, huh, there's a pretty good supply of those uh, Asian long beans and I want to pick a bundle of them and go, you know, it would go with good with the Asian long beans, some Swiss chard ribs. And so I take a little Swiss chard and maybe a few tomatoes. And then that's that night's side dish. I want to be able to go out like a hunter gatherer and select that which is most fresh for today. Why? Because I live in luxury compared to my grandparents. I've worked hard for what I have, and we live on a primarily meat and fish-based diet, and I only need so much vegetables. But there's one huge difference between here and there. A lot of things were easier there because the climate was gentler, but the growing season was shorter. My grandparents lived with a growth season most years around 130 days between first and last frost and first frost. On a great year, the, the, the last frost came extremely early and you were willing to, to believe it was. And the, uh, the other side came extremely late and you got a couple extra weeks to harvest 150 days. I have 250 plus days of growing season. I have more than a hundred more days. I have a quarter of a year more than my grandparents did. Conversely, I have, you know, about a hundred days that were not in production. If I'm not doing greenhouse, if I'm not doing some hydroponics upstairs in a bedroom, which I'm always doing something like that. So I don't really need, to put up five months worth of food in a basement that I also don't have. I would rather take the space that I have that's primarily freezer space and put beef in it and put catfish in it and put chicken in it. So I'm taking that approach more because I have a different need set. And I think that's important because what happens a lot of times with people when it comes to gardens and what have you, and again, guys, make sure you put your questions in all caps. I'm 
since I'm relying on one screen today, I'm really not paying any attention. I've only got one question start. I'll try to keep this screen up a little bit more for you going forward. But I have kind of still drilled down to 12 crops that are the best for me. And some of them are storage crops and, and, and some of them aren't. Uh, but because I have this long growing season and because some of them survive frost really well, they basically can stay even past the growing season. I still can harvest. So my, my go-to crops, my go-to top three were go-to top three for my grandparents, peppers, tomatoes, and cucumbers. I do the cucumbers because they're almost an afterthought with trellising, and I don't need, grow a ton of them. We don't make a lot of pickles. I like pickles. I'm the only person in my family that does. So there's not a lot of call for me. to. You know, I might do a quick pickle here and there. That's about it. Uh, every year I probably do one batch of fermented pickles just for the hell of it for me. Uh, tomatoes, everybody eats them. Salsas, pico de gallo, bruschetta. I mean, and they just – everybody grows tomatoes because everybody likes them. For peppers, you know, we grow bell peppers – and hot peppers. And I also tend to grow Cubanelles every year, which kind of fill the role of a bell pepper. They just do really good for me. And I grow those because they are our go-to that we eat. The Trombuchino squash that I showed you, if you're on the video, uh, we grow that every year because it's a great survival crop. We get a ton of them. We don't actually eat all that we get. We get a ton of seed. I get to share that and distribute that because it's such a valuable seed, in my opinion. Uh, whatever we don't eat gets fed to the birds in the end but we have it. So it's an extra thing that we have and we do eat it and we eat it more as a, as a summer squash than a winter squash. So when it's coming in as a, uh, as a summer squash, we will take it and we'll just take that long neck, put it through the food processor and cut it into discs. And we'll make things like uh, zucchini lasagna out of it, or I'll take um, an angel. What do you call it? A uh, julienne peeler and makes noodles out of it. So we use it, more as a summer squash when it's low in carbs before it develops all its sugars. And then we store the excess production like I showed you there. Uh, but it's, it's because it is the only squash that I can grow that routinely fights off well enough the, the vine borers that we have around here. I grow, I'll throw all three of these together. Um, Asian long beans, Asian eggplant, and Asian cucumbers. Cucumbers kind of, I've duplicated that. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, but I'll, I'll bring it up here because I found the Asian varieties of cucumbers are more resistant uh, to uh, the uh, cucumber uh, mosaic virus that the little cucumber beetles spread. I've had much better results growing them. So I've gone to those. The Asian eggplants, I always thought I hated eggplant. I don't. Um, eggplant has to be prepared properly if you're eating a great big Italian style giant eggplants and they have to be salted and bleaded because uh, if you don't pull uh, certain alkalinity out of them, they taste like an ashtray. And so whenever I had uh, eggplant, it was always, you know, eggplant Parmesan covered and smothered and stuff. And it, it gave me the opinion that eggplant was primarily something that you had to cover the taste of to eat. And when I discovered uh, Turkish food to one degree, like the Baba Ganoush and all, I was like, yeah, it's pretty good stuff. But when I discovered Asian eggplants, I realized, oh, so I can just cut this up and cook it and it's done. Uh, it's, and I, I have found them to be incredibly prolific and they dehydrate well. So they are one of our uh, storage crops and you, you can grow half a dozen plants and have more of them than you could ever use. And then Asian long beans, I grow those because beans do really well here 
early in the season and late in the season and mid season in the heat, we get uh, a disease called bean rust on like your pole and your bush beans. And the Asian uh, long beans, the Chinese noodle beans, call them whatever you want to, they don't get it at all. So they grow fast. They produce a bean that tastes like a bean to me. So we rely on those a lot. Swiss chard. uh, I always have a few plants of Swiss chard going because it's such a wonderful crop. It's a leaf crop. You got the stalks that you can use more like a cut vegetable. Uh, And I've had Swiss chard make it through multiple seasons uh, before it's finally gone to seed. If you just keep cutting it back. Sweet potato. I already covered that because it's a dual use crop. It's also a storage crop. We don't eat a lot of sweet potato, but we eat a few a year. Uh, It's kind of a treat, right? So instead of eating cake, we eat a sweet potato. Uh, fennel, love fennel. It's a great low-carb crop. It's very delicious. It's a dual-use crop because you can take fronds from it without actually taking the whole plant and use that as part of your cooking. And you can take the bulb. The bulb and the stalks are delicious. And it also feeds some of my favorite critters to see in the garden, which are the black swallowtail butterflies. Their caterpillars are all over it. They probably get half of my fennel. They can have it all I love them that much. I love having them in the garden. And then what I added this year was the Indian uh, python snake bean. That is one of the most delicious things I've ever eaten. And I will keep growing that forever. Everybody that tried that at the workshop said, man, that was one of the best things I've ever eaten, especially for a vegetable. Uh, People were coming back for seconds and thirds on it. I probably should have cooked more of it than I did. Uh, but I was kind of in the middle of things when I did that. But that plant, you know, you can take them when they're little, but you can let them get three feet long, and they never get woody or sticky or anything like Like the the rind doesn't get too heavy, what have you, and I seriously recommend uh, considering that one. And it's a vertical plant, so it doesn't take up any space to grow it. So lessons I take from my grandparents' way of thinking and how this all incorporates. Um What we call less than ideal, they call practical. So let's go back to that for a second about how they used 10-10-10 fertilizer. Now, let's say you'd had the balls and you'd have needed some to go tell my grandpa in 1984, sat up on his porch with him and looked at his arms where he had pieces of coal embedded in his arm. Because he told the doctor, it'll take, it'll be more harm for you to take it out than to leave it in after he'd been in a mine accident where the mine collapsed in on him. And you'd said, well, Biff, you know, when you put that 10, 10, 10 fertilizer there, you're hurting the planet. He would have said, you're not from around here now, are you, boy? That would have been his response. And he, the next response would have been, get out of here. The man grew up his whole, his property was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. The little bit of uh, poison he used, he would have said, yeah, I feel bad about that, but I got to feed my family. And it was so limited. The place buzzed with insects. When I was a kid, the, the lawn was full of a mix of grass and clover. And when the clover started flowering, you didn't dare walk around barefoot. Now, it felt great. No birds or nothing. You could run around barefoot all you want, but you were going to do it for about five minutes before you got stung because there were bumblebees and, and honeybees everywhere. So his mindset was, I'm feeding my family. 
And so this less than ideal shit, I ain't worried about ideal. I'm worried about does it work? Yet he was able to balance that with being, in, in my opinion, a great steward for nature. I would, I would never uh, badmouth anything my grandfather did, even though I might choose to do some things differently. Next, there is room for fun, but if you spend money and time, you need a return of investment. In permaculture, we would call that the principle of obtain a yield, and the theoretical yield of a system is unlimited, right? So everything they did, again, came from a standpoint of, man, this better, this better result in something. And that's why, like, when I wanted to put in, like, Swiss chard's a perfect example. They ended up deciding that I was right, which feels good when you're a kid and your old-ass grandparents are like, hey, you were right. The Swiss chard was a great crop. But they were not hip on it. That was one of the crops I had to grow on my own bed. And I went down to Center Supply, and I wanted to grow spinach. And it was already fairly well in the summer. And the old man down there, he told me, if you try to grow spinach right now, it's not going to survive. It's, it's too hot out. It's not going to do well. Um, but you might try this Swiss chard stuff. And he's like, don't plant it in the ground. Plant it in cups. And keep it in the shade until it gets established and then put it out in the garden. And so I did that and it worked out really well. Well, once I did that, they were open to it. But they weren't going to give up any space for a freaking leaf. And even when we, they're like, well, yeah, you know what? That could fit in between there and there and you could intergrow it, right? There was none of this. We're going to have a bed of Swiss chard. And they were right. What the hell will we do with a bed of Swiss chard? But they wanted to make sure that what they were doing produced more than it cost to produce. We call that in permaculture an energy audit. It works the same way. Don't spend money on shit you don't need. I look at all the stuff that we buy for gardening today, and, man, there was very little that we had as stuff. So the, the tomato ties were old shirts that were worn out that were, you know, and that was for uh, blanching the, the cauliflower too. So when cauliflower grows, the head starts to form, you tie the leaves up and that you would take old torn rags and stuff for that. We had a little stool. We had a little three gallon bucket for harvest. We had a couple trowels, a couple shovels and picks and stuff. Most of that was leftover shit for mining anyway. Um, we didn't have a bunch of stuff. He had a cold frame where he started his plants under the grapevine. The grapevine trellis was built out of like scrap steel. The cold frame was basically a box in the ground with a giant old window. He probably took off like an abandoned building somewhere with a block and tackle. It was so heavy to pull the window up and down. I mean, they did not waste money. They did not have fancy things. Um, don't use something unless it's necessary. Now, I'm not quite that strict on it anymore, but I think it was more like don't use something unless it's really beneficial, unless the cost of using it is exceeded by the value it produces by using it. They, again, they, they, these were people that were more worried about feeding the family than they were about somebody looking at it. Um, don't waste your production. Eat it store it, give it away, or feed it to livestock. There's a lot of people that garden that maybe they don't do really, really well, but they end up with a lot of the food that they produce just being wasted. 
And that was something you, know, you don't waste food. And if you feed it to the chickens, you didn't waste it. You know, if it became part of that system, that was that we had to feed the chickens anyway. So if we had extra food, but they were big on like, this is human food. And we put enough by for the year. Go give this to some other people. And, and, and that's something I've tried to, to stick with, you know, making sure that whatever we produce, we do something with it and harvest and harvest and harvest more. It will create more production. Like there was a, I got a lot of leeway as a teenager, but like today is the day to go pick green beans. Like you better get up in the morning, go pick the green beans or you're going to hear about it nonstop. And you ain't going to be able to do nothing until you took care of that. And again, it wasn't just because they didn't want to waste, like the, the crop stays on the plant too long, it starts to go bad, it gets, you know, over mature or whatever. It was they knew that if we maintained this cycle of harvest, that the plant would maintain a cycle of production trying to procreate its young, right? And what I want to end with today is kind of my hope that we will restore our country to a place where every fourth or fifth, or I'll take every 10th yard has a garden in it. And the reason is I think it solves so many problems. I I just go back to being a kid, like I was talking about and not really understanding my place in the financial world. There's a funny thing about, your level of economics, especially as a kid where you're not the one worried about paying the bills. You can be poor, but if everybody around you is poor, you don't know that you're poor because you have nothing to compare it to. So I grew up in a school where the rich kids hung out with the poor kids because if the rich kids didn't hang out with the poor kids, there would have been like a clique of five kids and they would have had no one else. They would have been pretty bored with themselves. We had the Quandle family that owned the concrete plant. We had the Dronic family that were wealthy for other reasons outside of the area. We had the Yingling family. Yes, Yingling beer. That was kind of it. So, yes, those, those people that lived up on Mahatunga Street, which was the wealthy area, you could see their big houses and all But when you went to school with them, you didn't really like it wasn't like some kind of teen drama shit you see today where you got the super rich clique and everybody's driving around. And like even those kids, like they weren't coming to school in convertibles and shit like that. And there were so few of them, it didn't really matter. The vast majority of people were in the same economic station in life. They closed the school on the first day of deer season because if you didn't, nobody would be there anyway. That's a true story. And as far as I know, they still do. And yet I never thought to myself, gee, I, I, I wonder if I'm going to eat tonight. And how could you? You have a great big chest freezer, and it's full of fish that you've frozen all summer long. And as you're really starting to draw down that supply, squirrel and rabbit and deer and pheasant is starting to replace it. You have this massive garden. You're being forced to pick food every day. Yes, forced would be the right word. I enjoyed it to a degree, but definitely, like, it was not optional. 
It wasn't like, if it pleases your highness, please go pick our green beans today. No, I pick the green beans, cut the broccoli, whatever. So when I was constantly having food move through my hands, how could I be worried about food? So I think that a lot of trouble in the world comes from the instability that comes from a lack of security. The more secure people feel, and I don't mean government-provided security, i.e. socialism, communism, fascism, but the general ability of a society to secure itself. I know I'll eat tomorrow. I know it's very unlikely that somebody will break in my house and kill me or take my stuff. What I have, I will get to keep, and I have a reasonable expectation that tomorrow will be at least as good as today. Societies like that do really well. They prosper. Even your outside society might look into that society and say, boy, they really don't have a lot. They might have more than you because their culture is stronger. Their community is stronger. And I definitely believe that I grew up in a stronger community than most communities there are today. And I believe that the root point of that was the guard. It's the primary pillar of what we call homesteading today. But when you added the other things into it, Right. When, when, when you add the other things into it, the other pillars, perennials, the fact that we would plant fruit trees and things like that. We had quite a few walnut trees and apple trees on our property. But like my neighbors up the road, the Devsky family and that family literally came over from Ukraine with my family at the turn of the last century. Right. Um, they had huge rows of, of beautiful raspberries and things like that. Uh, my uncle had all different types of my uncle. It was one house up fruit trees. There were more than they could ever use big black walnut trees everywhere, et cetera, the, the perennials built into it. And then on top of that, we had the livestock component. You know, every, every, every 10th house had a little chicken coop or something like that. People kept rabbits and things like that, you know, um, so then you had that whole component and then you had the fertility that created feeding back into the garden itself. But what really anchored it, and it's going to be the one I cover last in this series, was what I call the hunter-gatherer knowledge. And I put trade in the notes just to make clear that is part of hunter-gatherer knowledge. So when we could sit back and say, there's all this land around us that either nobody owns or the people that own it don't care or it's public land and we can go to it. And we know up by the water dam area where the pole lines are, there's this huge, massive field of blueberries up there. And every year we can get together, we can go up there and pick blueberries. And it doesn't matter how many other groups of people we pick, see picking blueberries up there, that there will never be a time when we'll run out of blueberries. They will always be there. And then, well, a couple of weeks after that, we can go up to this other area and it's just, and, and basically any road anywhere was lined with blackberries. All the blackberries you, you could, you could stand. And, you know, you had wild strawberry and we had, we did mushroom foraging and, you know, we had the, uh, the matakis, the hen of the woods, uh, the chicken of the wood mushrooms as well, uh, the morals, et cetera. Like there were mushroom puffballs even everywhere. Like there, I could walk out the back of my grandparents' property and there was like a wood buffer between there and the high school and I could pick mushrooms all through the fall, just wander around picking up mushrooms. 
when you put all of that together, you had what I call the first security done, food security. If you look around the world where society goes to shit, and when you say this is not a secure place, you know, I would not feel comfortable walking from this building to this building by myself, right? If, if, when you find that place, it is almost inevitable in the world today that it lacks food security. And so when you, when you build a society on food security and then the cultural values that go with that, in other words, your 14-year-old kid is a lot less likely to end up gangbanging if he has to get his ass up first thing in the morning and go out and pick blueberries or go out and pick uh, green beans. Or if in, in the winter, instead of being bored trying to figure out what to do, he's running a trap line for money and me. Like there is a, 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 and then the mindset is whatever we have that we can't use, we give it away. You have a very stable society. And that's why I'd like to see this come back to being something that, that is, is more common than it is today. On that, we're going to wrap things up. I want to uh, remind you guys, as always, you can help support the show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you have never done so, or if yours has expired, please consider doing that. But I made you a promise last week, didn't I, that I'd do a sale. And then this weekend went to crap with this computer problem and all, so I didn't get it set up yet. So don't do it. I will announce a discount code for a sale tomorrow on MSB. Also consider getting something from the swag shop uh, at tspswag.com. You can get all the cool TSP gear. Uh, we have Redneck Hippie Duck Farmer shirts should be out not too far into the future. We've got a bunch of other cool stuff there now. Uh, check that out. And I wanted to let you know that one of our expert council members and awesome member of the community, Nicole Sauce, has just made an announcement that Jack's Bourbon Cooled Coffee is back for the holidays. A few years ago, Nicole Sauce and I sat out together to make a coffee that was truly unique. And I tasted a dozen different roasts and coffees from Sumatra and a few other places. And we, we came down on uh, Sumatran coffee, and it is a fantastic bean. But what makes it really cool is it is cooled with bourbon. And this was an extrapolation on a technique that Nicole learned that was common in, like, Vietnam where they would cool with vodka. So when the beans come out, they need to be cooled from the roaster. These are cooled with bourbon. She makes this like once a year, usually about 100 pounds a year, and it's only available this time of year. So get it now. She has a lot of other cool stuff going on. Uh, she's got some sampler packs. She's got a new uh, program where you can have gift stuff sent. Pretty cool. You can find out more at hollerroast.com. Remember, hollerroast.com does do a discount for members of the MSB. Next up today, remember you can help support us by doing your online shopping where tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I wanted to let you know about this today. I have been a big fan since they first came out of the Oregon brand electric chainsaws. They make them both in a cordless and a corded variety. The corded variety today is on sale stupid cheap. They have a 16-inch bar option on that. It is on sale for let's just see the 16 inch bar let's see 72 bucks and the 18 inch bar is on sale i think for 90 yeah 89.99 that's stupid cheap it really is 
These are awesome saws. If you don't have a chainsaw, you probably should pick one up. If you do, but you want an electric saw for doing work like the, when you drag a tree over by, the, by your shop or whatever, the corded ones are a hell of a deal. The beauty of these, they have an automatic sharpener. All you have to do to sharpen a chain on one of these is pull a lever and run the saw, and it sharpens it like laser, stupid, sharp, sharp. And at the price, I mean, really, guys, when you can pick up a chainsaw uh, for the price that you can here, 72 bucks. Now, the 16 versus 18-inch bar. These are electric saws. This is not like a steel farm boss or something like that. I don't know that that two inches is really worth another 20 bucks. You're probably never going to maximize what that saw does, but you can check the video out that I have there. Uh, it's They're just great for the price. That, that's all I'm going to say there. And you can always help support us by doing your online shopping where, that's right, tspaz.com. And if you are on the Daily Mail, which just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Daily Mail, uh, you can get an email every day that tells you all this stuff so you don't ever miss anything. Let's go ahead and take some questions from the audience now. Uh, Noah Axelrod says, how does aspirin work? It is one of the the, the, the primary acids in it. I Salicylic acid, I'm not sure. Uh, rooting hormone supposedly works pretty well for this as well. I don't think they fully understand the mechanism by which it actually works, though. But when you use aspirin, specifically with tomatoes, it gives them the ability to fight off blight really well. The best way to do it, in my experience, has been if you're starting your own plants, drop an aspirin tablet in the the cup with your seed and grow it with it. And then they say to use like one tablet per gallon of water and water every two weeks through the season or something. All I did, since a big giant bottle of generic aspirin is like four bucks, is I a couple times a month would just go out to where the tomatoes were growing and dig back and throw two or three tablets in there and cover it up. And it it worked really, really well for me. I don't know the full scientific explanation for it. James Stevens says, damn Jack, how did your eggplants not get devastated by pests? I have never had a a, a pest problem with eggplants. I've had some kind of leaf miner or something get on them. Sometimes put little holes in a leaf, but I, I just never had that problem. I think that, The number one thing you can do to reduce problems with pests for most situations is healthy soil. The healthier the plant, the less susceptible to pest pressure that it will become. Uh, Zone 6, Eric said, how did you cook the python beans? When I made them for everybody at the workshop, just as a real quick thing, I just, we took the seeds out of them because these were mature. And so we took the seeds out, and that made, there's a pulp, and it's kind of gross to get the seeds out. So I got the students to do it in return for giving them some seeds. But the the skin, I just cut it up in pieces, and I poured some olive oil on the flat top, and I threw it on the flat top good and hot, and I gave it a good sprinkle of Redmond salt, a couple flips and twists with the uh, spatula, cooked it till it was al dente, took it off. That was it, just salt and olive oil. That's all I did, and it was fan. It was fantastic. It's they taste like a combination of cucumber and green bean. When they're raw, they taste more like cucumber, and when they're cooked, they taste more like green bean. I would say it's like a seventy thirty flip. 
So when they're raw, they're like 70% cucumber and 30% green bean. And when you cook them, they're like 70% green bean. And that little hint of cucumbers, it's not something you usually think of cooking. Uh, but actually, a lot of cultures do cook cucumber. But it's it's actually really uh, delicious. And it didn't require, again, picking them young or anything like that. Jeremy Sharp said, if you had to choose because of space, would you grow Trumbachino or snake bean? Ooh. I, let me just say, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. Instinctually, I want to say I would grow the Trumbachino because it's a much higher calorie storage crop. Like the, the, the snake bean is not a storage crop. And I know I'll get heavy production from the Trombachino. This year, I didn't get hardly any snake bean at all until we got a big rain in August and all of a sudden it produced like crazy. And then I found out that it pollinates with a moth, like certain moths, nocturnal moths. And they may have just not been active because of the drought. So I don't know how reliably the production will come from the snake beans. But So it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know. From a flavor standpoint, if I knew I would get reliable season-long production out of the snake bean in a normal uh, weather year, I would grow them. They are not just a little better. They are a lot better. They are absolutely fantastic. John uh, says, would you rather drink a Yingling, a Miller, a Coors, or a Budweiser? Well, a Yingling, because it has actual flavor in it. now, there's like the Yingling Light and the Yingling Zero or whatever it is now, the Eagle Zero or whatever. Um, Yingling has gone out into the world of beer. But when I was a kid, because that's when I started drinking Yingling, when I was like a teenager in high school, uh, there was Yingling, and that was Yingling Premium. Do you know what the alternative to Yingling Premium was? Nothing. I don't even know why they call it premium. Probably because it sounded good for marketing purposes. There was one thing, you could get it in like three counties, it came in a great big wax box, and the beer that that they still sell that is the closest to that is what they call Yingling Lager today. So if you're drinking that, you're the closest you could be to Yingling in the 80s, and it's not the same, unfortunately. It's close. It's got a certain character to it that definitely takes me back to sitting at a bush party with my arm around a girl when I was 16 years old. And so for nostalgia alone, but I do think it's a better overall beer. Is it the greatest beer in the world? No, but it's like that thing that you grew up with. So there might be people that grew up in other locations, like maybe have a Wisconsin beer or something that they, they would, they would choose. But I, I actually find comparing really angling again, not light or something like that to Miller Coors or Budweiser, a little bit insulting, a little bit, just because it, it is, it is not, and it certainly has a lot more character and flavor. And John also says, what are your thoughts on Sam Binkman Freed and the FTX situation? He's a scam artist. It's a big mess, and it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. So we won't go any deeper onto that. Uh, Rachel asks, for a raised bed, would you cover the bottom with cardboard or plastic? If I covered the bottom of a raised bed with anything, it would be cardboard. That would be prudent. It would help to prevent things underneath there from growing up through your new soil and infiltrating your bed. It will eventually, uh, you know, rot out. I would not use plastic because then you've made a pot out of your raised bed. 
your raised bed should let your plants grow all the way through its soil down into the native soil for, uh, you know, the best results of your plants there. I don't see any more. Oh, we got another question here. Uh, weathered soil says, when you chop and drop in your beds, do you just cover it with your compost and weed blocker? Reference the last one. Yes, uh, if I chop and drop. And sometimes you have like a lot of stuff in one bed where it's a giant pile, and then you kind of, I'll spread it out on the other beds. And um, you can mulch over it, or you can just tarp over it, or put weed blocker over it. It depends on what you're doing. Depends on what you're doing for that winter season. Because you're talking about chopping and dropping at the end of the season here. If I were chopping and dropping, and I was going to plant a cover crop, what I would probably do is either take all of the chop and not drop and throw it into my compost, or I'm going to throw it on the ground, run the tractor over it a few times, and then rake it up and spread it out. Because I'm not going to want these big – I don't want to wait for it to rot down. And that's that's what I'd probably do uh, in that situation. Uh, that's about it. I don't see any more questions, so we're going to wrap up for today. Again, I appreciate you guys tuning in with me today. Those of you on the audio only, again, no exit or intro music at all until we get through this uh, editing crisis. But I should, I think I figured out a way to use Audacity, thanks to Tom, to reduce the file size. So that one big, giant uh, file size last week, we, we should be off of that. And I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll have an episode of Bitcoin Breakout, and that will proceed through the week as usual. Thanks for coming today, and I will catch you guys tomorrow with another one.